Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, promises to help the bottom line and the planet at the same time. Is it too good to be true? Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of an episode digging into that very question. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm David Folkenflick, and this is On Point. The impeachment investigation is picking up steam on Capitol Hill. Former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Bill Taylor was among the latest to testify against President Trump and his associates. One Democratic lawmaker who left the closed-door briefing called it a smoking gun. Here's another, Eric Swalwell of California. He was a highly credible witness who provided a detailed account of what he saw uh, in his service uh, in Ukraine uh, as it related to this uh, shakedown scheme. The president has demanded a stronger defense, and House Republicans have responded, but not on the substance, more with theatrics and accusations of ill will by Democrats. A group of House Republicans stormed into the secure conference room in a way that interrupted a senior Pentagon official's testimony and also required fresh sweeps to make sure the room hadn't been compromised. Republican Congressman Lee Zeldin. The American public shouldn't be able to watch this in real time live. This is a process lacking legitimacy, credibility, and fairness. And we have a huge problem with that. Meanwhile, Kurds pelted American troops with rotten fruit and stones as they left Syria, and many politicians in both parties have condemned Trump's withdrawal. Here at home, the president stands by his decision. We have done them a great service, and we've done a great job for all of them. And now we're getting out. Let someone else fight over this long, blood-stained sand. Let someone else fight. Join us. What do you make of the recent revelations, how they affected your feelings about the president or about the impeachment inquiry? What questions do you have about it for our roundtable of journalists? Join us anytime at onpointradio.org or on Twitter and Facebook at On Point Radio. Glad to introduce uh, our squad here to talk a little bit about the week's news. With us from Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, Tolu Olorunipa. He's a political reporter for The Washington Post and a CNN political analyst. Tolu, great to have you with us. Great to be here, David. Also with us from Washington, D.C., Los Angeles Times national political reporter Janet Hook. Janet Hook, welcome back. Hey, David. Great to be back. And from Hanover, New Hampshire, On Point's own news analyst Jack Beatty joins us. Hello, Jack. Hello, David, Janet, and Tulu. So, uh, team, this was a, a pretty intense week. It seemed as though there was kind of this percussive drumbeat. And I've got to say that uh, although it was not the last word uh, that came from Capitol Hill this week, it seemed as though that a uh, former ambassador uh, who had returned to – with misgivings to government service, uh, Bill Taylor – uh, giving testimony on Capitol Hill, uh, released to the public uh, back a, a few days ago, uh, really was very damning about what happened uh, in terms of the president, uh, this administration, uh, and the White House. Atulu, can you walk us through why uh, what he had to say was important? Well, we were able to get our hands on his 15-page 
opening statement, which really walked through his entire experience while he was in Ukraine just for a few months, where he was called by the Trump administration to replace the outgoing ambassador, which had been recalled by President Trump. And he said that while he was there, he saw uh, what was this uh, basically unauthorized effort by the president's uh, personal attorney and some of his political allies to get Ukraine to deliver investigations against President Trump's political opponents in exchange for funding U.S. military aid that had been approved by Congress but that had been stopped by President Trump. So he was the most uh, efficient witness so far to lay out the idea of a quid pro quo. This is something the president and his allies have denied. But he is a career diplomat, someone who has served the country for decades, someone who took scrupulous notes about what he was seeing while he was there. And many people within uh, that committee that was that was holding those hearings came away from his uh, testimony very shocked, very concerned by what, what had happened. And we did see the process arguments from Republicans uh, stem more from the idea that the president wasn't getting a fair shake and less on the substance of these allegations because the allegations were so strong and so damaging for the president. I want to read just two very brief excerpts of that statement that he read to the uh, read to the three House committees that were investigating uh, to talk a little bit about the stakes. What the former ambassador who was functioning essentially in place of the ambassador who had been fired at the behest of the president and the grounds of that firing had been uh, – uh, is now under question as well. Uh, but he was serving without confirmation. So he sort of served in effect as ambassador. But he, he wrote in this uh, – uh, statement. He said, first, if Ukraine succeeds in breaking free of Russian influence, it is possible for Europe to be whole, free, democratic, and at peace. In contrast, if Russia dominates Ukraine, Russia will again become an empire, oppressing its people and threatening its neighbors and the rest of the world. And I think it's worth reminding listeners that what was at stake here was whether or not the president had ordered that hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid had been withheld from the Ukrainians so that he could get them to announce publicly they were going to investigate uh, Democrats, uh, whether the Bidens uh, uh, and their behavior uh, there. He then writes later on in the statement, he says – he talks about another ambassador, uh, another diplomat. He says, Ambassador Volker and I – he's talking about meeting after, after a meeting with the Ukrainian president. Ambassador Volker and I could see the armed and hostile Russian-led forces on the other side of the damaged bridge along the line of contact. Over 13,000 Ukrainians had been killed in the war, one or two a week more Ukrainians would undoubtedly die without the U.S. assistance. Janet Hook, uh, you know, how much meat is there on this bone? How much support is there for what uh, former Ambassador uh, Taylor has, has, has alleged in his account of things? Well, the thing that I think is was really interesting about that testimony, the parts that you were reading in particular, he really tried to paint a portrait of what was at stake in this foreign policy. And I think there had been broad consensus behind that policy, which is why Congress appropriated this aid in the first place, the aid that Trump was withholding. It isn't just a power play. It isn't like who's calling the shots in the State Department. He really kind of laid out what the United States' strategic interest is in this. And um, it is true that he described – he also described it as a kind of – a a power play in that he sensed that there were two channels for American foreign policy that were being executed. One was the one authorized by Congress and the other was run by uh, Trump uh, political allies pursuing Trump's political interest. 
Uh, obviously, uh, former mayor uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, New York mayor uh, Rudy Giuliani, serving as the president's lawyer, but also sort of this this uh, what Ambassador Taylor calls this outside channel. Uh, John Bolton, a figure known as a hawk, a figure known as sometimes sympathetic to Russia, nonetheless in this depiction, uh, outraged by these unofficial channels and also seemingly outraged by the idea that domestic political considerations could be folded in uh, to diplomatic considerations. It seems as though, Janet, as though that, you know, you have folks even who may be sympathetic to what Trump's trying to do in certain motions are very upset by the, 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 the motivations and by the, uh, the impulses that, that ensued. Right. And that there somehow seems to be this kind of rogue operation going at cross purposes with what stated uh, American policy is in the region. Um, and then the whole thing got more convoluted when we found out that there were two of Rudy Giuliani's clients or associates who were involved in this effort and that they face charges now. Um, so that it really, the the unfolding, one of the problems uh, for ordinary people in following this is that there's so many characters and so many ambassadors and former ambassadors and henchmen. And um, the one thing that was very compelling about Bill Taylor's testimony is it told a pretty straightforward story and also with a kind of passion for the policy that he was um, defending that, you know, you don't often see among diplomats. Jack Beatty, it, it strikes me that a lot of people who have come in contact with this have come out, uh, shall we say, scathed. Uh, you know, Rick Perry, we've been talking about in recent days, obviously, uh, has announced that he's going to step down and he's now been drawn into this inquiry. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who seemed as though he had built up some respect for State Department, he seems to me very much back on his heels. Uh, he would return to his home state of Kansas this week, uh, seeking undoubtedly a hometown reception as he quietly explores a potential Senate bid. And he, he sits down for an interview with the Wichita Eagle, and yet he's confronted by questions from the local journalists over his department's role in the Ukraine scandal and the impeachment inquiry consuming Washington. Bill Taylor told Congress uh, this week that he sent you a cable on August 29th expressing his misgivings in the delay of military aid to Ukraine. What did you do with that cable? Yeah, I'm not going to talk about the inquiry this morning. So did you uh, relay his concerns to the president? Look, I, I came here today to talk about workforce development. came here today to talk about the great things that are going on here in Kansas. This inquiry will proceed. Congress will perform its oversight function. The State Department will continue to do all the things that we're required to do under the law and the Constitution. Jack Beatty, uh, we'll talk about Syria later, and, and the secretary also didn't want to deal with hometown questions about things happening in Syria. But but tell us a little bit about how Pompeo looks here, what we've learned about him, uh, to what degree he's you know found himself in controversy as well. Well, uh, yes. I mean, uh, he has said uh, that he has restored the swagger. The swagger is back to um, the American, to the uh, to the State Department, and to American foreign policy. He hasn't been showing much swagger himself, though. He he seems to be uh, actually sort of punchy from all this uh, controversy swirling around him. And uh, I think there's even an implication uh, that the president has been, who's of course been. Uh, on his, they've, they've had a mutual, uh, uh, you know, they, they've, they've got along very well, put it that way. I think the mm-hmm. president, there's been some implication the president has been sort of prodding him for, for actually having the audacity to, to uh, appoint Ambassador Taylor. I mean, uh, quote, on, who, who was among the, quote, human scum, the president 
Department said, uh, uh, who constitute the ranks of the never Trumpers. And he, he said in that tweet, you know, why are we putting people like this in this position? So he's, he's under criticism from his chief. He's facing these questions he can't answer. Uh, he's implicated in this policy in one way or another. And uh, it's not a good look uh, for uh, Mr. Pompeo. You know, the uh, the question of uh, Putin and the Russians lurking in the background, both of uh, the Ukraine matter and, of course, of, of Syria as well. With news this morning, NBC News reporting uh, that uh, Russian operative Maria, Maria Butina was released from prison and then immediately taken into custody to be, to be deported back to Russia. We're going to continue to talk a bit about the impeachment inquiry against uh, President Trump, the Republicans' defense, and those who the president is calling human scum. We'll also be talking about the president's press conference on Syria this week and developments there. We'll be taking some of your calls. What are your thoughts on all this? I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. A recent episode featured a debate about ESG, or environmental social governance. This sounds like more work than just putting your money into a social impact fund. It's a lot more work. Yeah. Anybody who thinks there's an easy solution here is either engaged in puffery, greenwash, or deceiving themselves. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. This is On Point. I'm David Folkenflik. President Trump is standing by his decision to withdraw U.S. troops from Syria despite the chaos that decision caused in the region. Follow us on Twitter and find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. We have still a crackerjack panel of guests with me this hour. Tolu Olurunipa, political reporter for The Washington Post and political analyst for CNN. Uh, Janet Hook, national political reporter for the Los Angeles Times, and our own on-point news analyst, Jack Beatty. I'm going to play a quick clip. Uh, you know, the president has been bouncing around from issues trying to find ways to to, to reset the topic of impeachment uh, here. Uh, and yet he found himself uh, in Pittsburgh on Wednesday speaking at the Shale Insight Energy Conference at which the president suggested there should be broad support for the walls he wants built on the southern border. We're building – a wall on the border of New Mexico, and we're building a wall in Colorado. We're building a beautiful wall, a big one that really works, that you can't get over, you can't get under. And we're building a wall in Texas. And we're not building a wall in Kansas, but they get the benefit of the walls that we just mentioned. It's like Oprah. You get a wall, you get a wall, you get a wall. I'm not sure if the president's going to get out a Sharpie and redrop the map like he did with the hurricane, but an interesting uh, claim for support nonetheless. We have calls piling up. We want to take some of them. Uh, we've got a call uh, from uh, Jeff calling from Omaha, Nebraska. Thanks for listening. Uh, what are your thoughts today, Jeff? The removal of troops from um, the Middle East, I'm in favor of that. I don't think the United States 
should be the world's policeman. I don't think that's fair to the taxpayers. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see what benefit we get from it. Um, that's what the U.N. is for. Uh, as regarding President Trump, I think that if he committed a crime and he's charged, um, he should stand uh, and if convicted, pay the penalty. No one is above the law. Uh, the Colorado thing is crazy. I, you know, how, how can he be so inept so often and still be supported by so many is hard for me to understand. But I understand that, you know, he, is the le- he was the lesser of two evils for many people. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's what, hap- that's what happens so often in presidential elections is that there's not a great person there. It's, you know, who is less bad, in, depending on your perspective. Um, so, Well, I appreciate that, I, Jeff. I worry- Jeff, can, let, Jeff, let me just ask you very, very quickly before I let you go and go to other callers. Did you vote for him as the lesser of two evils? Did you vote for Hillary Clinton? I or voted for neither one of them. I didn't vote for either one of them because I didn't think either one of them was worthy of being POTUS. All right. Well, thank you for calling in, Jeff. Thanks for listening. I want to take a call now from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Deborah, thanks for listening. What are your thoughts today? Uh, hello. Listen to your program all the time and love it. Um, listen, after yesterday's testimony, I do not see how we cannot impeach him. This should go very fast, and then we need to put a lot of pressure, both from the constituent side and from within, to move this through the Senate and get a vote to get him out of office. I mean, the testimony yesterday was so damaging. On top of the fact that he's starting to lose it, obviously, because, A, in New Mexico, we're not building any walls, and, B, I don't know where Colorado is on the border. Well, uh, fair enough. Uh, uh, You know, I... I, The best explanation I can come up with is perhaps he thinks there's construction happening of the walls there and they'll be shipped somewhere else, but I don't know. Uh, Deborah, one quick question for you. You said you wanted it to happen quickly. There are some Democrats who want it to happen quickly and some critics of the president says maybe it should take its time to see what it leads to, what what is actually uncovered. Uh, Why do you think it should happen quickly? After yesterday's testimony, and I am a firm believer that – and I've had to deal with him before and – no, the answer is no. It needs to move quickly. He's always been a shyster. He's a shyster, and there's nothing else to say about him. He has his own motive. That's what he was. It's like give him enough rope, and he will hang himself. All right. Well, that's and, uh, that's from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Thank you, Deborah. Going out to Dubuque, Iowa. Jim, uh, share your thoughts here before I return to our, our reporters' roundtable. Hi, I, I'm not sure why so many people assume that an investigation of the facts of what happened in the Ukraine would be dirty for Joe Biden. Everybody says it's to uncover dirt. I don't know why they assume that apparently that he's uh, guilty, uh, mm-hmm. although it does appear like uh, his son's uh, appointment to that company was a, a way of funneling bribes to the Biden family so that they would block the investigation of that uh, corrupt uh, energy company. So- so you, you, what you're advocating is a fuller understanding of what happened with the Biden family, Hunter Biden being a t- uh, assigned a high-paying uh, role on the board of a, of a Ukrainian uh, uh, fossil fuel company there. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying uh, I don't know why anyone would assume that uh, it's 
digging up dirt on Joe Biden, a political opponent, although he may not have been at the time when uh, these things happened. Okay, well, uh, let, me, let, but, me, let me turn that to our, our folks there. Uh, Tolu, uh, thanks, Jim, for your call. Tolu, explain why there might be an issue, why Democrats and, and some Republicans are saying it's a problem if you bring in questions of Democratic activity uh, or, or activity of Democrats or of the Biden son uh, in Ukraine as part of whether or not you deliver this aid to the Ukrainian government. Well, it's longstanding practice that you do not condition foreign aid or foreign policymaking at all on political benefit. You don't allow foreign governments to interfere in the U.S. election system. That's something that we learned during 2016 very clearly. And it seems, based on these charges, that that is what the president was trying to do. Uh, and now just for a quick set of, uh, of facts, uh, what happened with Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, uh, from what we know so far, the former vice president was not trying to get anyone fired in Ukraine to protect his son. Apparently, the person that he got removed, the prosecutor that he got removed, was someone who was condemned by the entire Western community because he was not doing enough to fight corruption in that country. And there are even some Republican senators that were also on board with the idea of reforming the prosecutor general's office in Ukraine. So some of the facts that the president has put out do not line up with what actually happened. And no matter what you think of Hunter Biden's position on this board, uh, the, the the idea that, that Joe Biden was taking action to protect his son, it just hasn't been backed up at all. So President Trump was calling for this investigation at a time when the facts seemed to be at odds with what he was calling for. And that's why a number of people believe that the president was doing it for political benefits and not for his stated goal of trying to clean out corruption. And he has also said that, you know, there's no other cases that we've seen where the president was so focused on corruption that he that he took specific action. It only happened in the case where it involved his political opponent. And that's one of the reasons that people are so concerned. Uh, Jack Beatty, there's a point at which uh uh, the president has been urging privately, publicly for Republicans to come more to his defense. You saw Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. He introduced this resolution in the Senate yesterday decrying the impeachment process in the House. Uh, Forty of his Senate Republican colleagues signed on, including Majority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky. Graham announced what is cl- clearly going to be a symbolic move at a press conference at the Capitol. The attempt to open up an inquiry of impeachment against President Trump failed miserably So they've created a new process that I think is very dangerous for the country. Instead of the judiciary looking at a potential impeachable offense, they've created a process in the intel uh, committee that's behind closed doors, doesn't provide uh, access uh, to the president's accuser, shuts Republicans out for uh, all practical purposes, and is an unworthy substitute for the way you need to do it, is at its core un-American. Jack, uh, Mitt Romney is among those who has uh, uh, come out with criticism of the president. This week, he, the president tweeted Republicans who oppose him, so-called never-Trumpers, are human scum. Uh, Representative Adam Kinzinger of Illinois has merged as a fairly rare Republican critic of the president. Here's what Kinzinger had to say. I mean, it, to call anybody human scum is beneath the office of the presidency. You can't say that, right? You're the president. You have different standards. So sometimes you'll hear people say, well, this congressman said this once and this... Yeah, nobody should be saying anything like this, but I think there's a different level when you're the president of the United States. You have a different responsibility, and that's why, you know, that's why I'm outspoken about it. 
Jack, the president's uh, brutal rhetoric is uh, pretty well established at this point. That said, what about the dynamic that, that are driving it behind the scenes? What about the president's effort to rouse Republicans to his side? Well, you know, the president is perhaps weeks away from a historic rebuke. There's no question about that. And Ambassador Taylor's damning testimony left no doubt that that will be what the majority of the House rules, that the president will be impeached uh, for abusing the powers of his office. And how is he reacting? Well, you mentioned the rhetoric. He began two weeks ago with treason and coup. That was beginning at about a nine. And now he's jumped to, I'm a victim of lynching and my opponents are human scum. Where will he be in another couple of weeks? And we know now that he was, if not uh, directly uh, instrumental, he was encouraging of this Republican uh, you know, effort to break into the, you know, force and stall the meeting at the skiff and create a media display. What else will he do? Will he encourage, uh, you know, uh, disruption? Will he encourage violence? How far will he go? His desperation here, I think, is measured. At a certain point, you run out of words. When you get to scum and lynching, you're running out of the vocabulary of indecency. You've got to go to something else. What will that be for this desperate man? Uh, Jack had mentioned a couple of important things uh, there. You know, he he compared his uh, uh, his treatment to lynching, as you say, incredibly. It's not even just racial overtones. Incredibly strong racial, uh, despicable racial history in this country. We spent an hour on that earlier this week, talking about that very matter. And as you mentioned, the skiff. Just for listeners who may not remember, that's a a sensitive, compartmented information facility at the Capitol. That really, it's a secure zone. Uh, Matt Gates, a Republican uh, from Florida, led over thirty other. House colleagues, Republicans there, basically busting up uh, testimony from a deputy assistant defense secretary. It was delayed hours. They had to essentially resweep uh, the testimony, uh, the, the 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 room to make sure it was still secure and not bugged. And a back note on that: about a quarter of all House of the House of Representatives, including Republicans, are entitled to attend that testimony by virtue of their membership on the committees involved. It would seem as though the beef would be largely symbolic there. Janet Hook, I do want to mention also: there's this other development that just took place overnight, where it appears that the Justice Department, the Attorney General William Barr, has changed the status of what had been reviewed by the U.S. Attorney uh, for Connecticut over the propriety of the investigation and. Uh, surveillance or monitoring of the Trump campaign and its associates to figure out what they were doing that led to, to uh, the subsequent uh, independent counsel's uh, investigation, that that review of the propriety of that investigation has itself become a criminal inquiry. What does that say to you? Right. So um, when we've been talking about what Trump was trying to get out of Ukraine, we focused a lot on uh, his effort to get them to investigate Joe Biden, but it was also part of his his obsession with getting to the bottom of the 2016 investigation of his campaign that eventually became the Mueller investigation. And so uh, the Justice Department has had this uh, prosecutor, John Durham, looking into basically the uh, – it had been an administrative review of the origins of the FBI looking into the Trump campaign in 2016. The main thing is that Trump is still completely obsessed with 2016. If you go to his his rallies, he's obsessed with it in a positive way. He loves to review the, um, 
the highlights of election night when Florida went his way, when Pennsylvania went his way. But he's also very focused on this idea that somehow the Mueller investigation had its roots in a hoax. And that's Mm -hmm. what this is all about. But the, the idea that a prosecutor is now pursuing that question as a criminal investigation, it's not just uh, Donald Trump's fever dream. This is now somebody with the power to call a grand jury and subpoena witnesses. So 2016 just is not going away. Let's turn now to to Syria for a few moments uh, before the end of this break, and we'll take it up again uh, at the top of the next segment. I want to talk about uh, the president's decisions there. President Trump announced Wednesday uh, he was lifting the sanctions against Turkey that he imposed after that nation invaded northern Syria. The sanctions that he imposed followed heavy criticism from Congress, including members of both parties. Trump has said he was right to lift the sanctions and that he was right to order the removal of U.S. troops from Syria that led to Turkey's invasion against Kurdish-controlled parts of Syria. This was an outcome created by us, the United States, and nobody else, no other nation. Very simple. And we're willing to take blame and we're also willing to take credit. Jack Beatty, is that something uh, that in retrospect the president is going to be able to claim as, as, as a good thing for the nation? That is that he's getting out of a foreign entanglement, that this is a worthwhile thing? Or is the political moment capturing something more enduring? Well, uh, Mitt Romney says it's a stain on American history, the betrayal of the Kurds. And uh, as for who uh, is winning in this case, the president says a great triumph of American diplomacy. Financial Times headlines, Putin can thank Trump for his triumph in Syria. It is the Russians again who have who have won. The Russians, whom we have recently learned from a rep- reporting in the New York Times, were bombing Syrian hospitals. They are now... Uh, con- uh, patrolling the area between the border of Syria <laughs> and Turkey with the Turks that used to be patrolled by the Americans and the Kurds. Uh, and the president, you know, undoubtedly the president thinks he's following a public impulse. He's following his campaign promise to get American forces out of the Middle East. But when you look at it, 11,000 or more uh, Kurds died fighting against ISIS, who are in the first instance, perhaps not in the first instance, but who are a threat to the United States. We all agree on that. And in that four-year period, six Americans died. That's tragic. But they didn't die for nothing. They died protecting us from this dire threat. Now, ISIS, we don't know what's happened. The president says, oh, they're a couple or loose out there. They'll get him. And then his... uh, his, uh, secret, his defense people say, no, there are more like 100 that are on the loose and there'll be more. Where will they go? What will, uh, w- will any of this come mm. back uh, to America? The president, could t- to claim this a victory, w- w- you know, one would hate to see an American defeat. Richard Engel of NBC tweeted, Kurds say they didn't sacrifice 11,000 men and women fighting ISIS with U.S. special forces to become guards for remote Syrian oil fields. Totally, we got about 20, 30 uh, seconds left. You know, to what degree are Trump's top defense and national security people pleased with where things stand? 
Not very many people are pleased. Uh, even the president's allies have criticized him. It doesn't seem like this has been carried out in any kind of efficient way. They have really bounced around and tried to clean up the president's abrupt decision-making process, and that's part of the reason why you heard Defense Secretary Mark Esper today say that actually the U.S. is going to leave some troops behind to secure mm-hmm. some of the oil facilities there. So a lot being done to try to fix this on the back end. We're going to uh, take talk a little bit more about Syria, catch you up on international news. Plus, we're also talking about 2020, who's up and down. I'm David Fulkenflick, and this is On Point. Three decades ago, Sterling Cunio was an angry, violent teenager facing life without parole. Today, he's a celebrated author and a peacemaker. His journey is a window into how violence is perpetuated in this country. But it's also a story about how people change. There's no better example of a person who's prepared to be released. And about people changing the system. We have to reimagine what we're doing, because what we're doing isn't working. This is Cell Blocks to Mountaintops, a podcast and video series. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. In foreign news, Canada elected Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to a second term, but he lost his majority in government. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu failed to form a coalition and had to return the mandate to the president for someone else to get a shot. And across the pond, British Prime Minister Boris, Boris Johnson lost a critical vote to fast-track his plan to pull uh, uh, the UK out of the European Union. Here at home, thousands of people in California are being forced to evacuate as wildfires rage north of Los Angeles. Nearly 4,000 acres have already burned. Officials issued a firewatch for more than 7 million people across the state. Uh, Even the biggest sports news is coming out of Washington these days. The Nats are up in the World Series two games to zero against the Houston Astros. Games three and four are tonight and tomorrow. Yet the Astros are facing unwelcome news off the field as well, firing an executive who profanely taunted a female reporter over a player accused of domestic violence last year. Follow us on Twitter and find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. I'm proud to reintroduce our panel of guests with me this hour, Tolu Olunipa. He's a political reporter for The Washington Post, a political analyst for CNN. Janet Hook, she's national political reporter for the Los Angeles Times and our own news analyst here at On Point, Jack Beatty. First, I want to take a couple of calls, folks calling in about Syria, getting a call from Lexington, Massachusetts. Andy's calling in. Thanks for listening, Andy. Hi, David. How are you? Thanks for taking my call. You bet. I am utterly amazed that the Joint Chiefs of Staff actually let the president do what he did, that nobody in the media has brought things to the next logical conclusion that the Joint Chiefs did not say, Mr. President, given the possible ramifications, we cannot do this. If, in fact, we had applied sanctions severe enough to effectuate Turkish change, Erdogan may well have said, well, U.S., if you're going to do that, you can remove your strategically important air bases from Turkey. And nobody has discussed this next next step. Thanks. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Uh, also, we're getting a call from Omaha, Nebraska. Dennis, thanks for calling in. What are your thoughts today? Hello. Um, I, I used to be a NATO peacekeeper, and I worked with people in the Turkish army. And mm-hmm. if you would have talked to me last month, and told me we were considering, you know, sanctions against Turkey, I would have, like, laughed at you. Um, now, in the context of NATO, 
the Turkish army will do things according to the rules, just like any other European people, like like Germans and French and British and Italians. And, and just and just to be NATO, just just to be clear, Dennis, with other listeners, Turkey is part of NATO, so it's it's one of our NATO allies there. So forgive me. Go ahead. Right. Okay. Thank you. And so, in the context of NATO, there could be a buffer between the Turkish and the Kurdish communities, and with with little problem. And um, and I feel very bad that we're not managing our relationships between our allies, because Turkey and the Kurdish are our allies. Like Japan and Korea, they didn't like each other after World War II. We had to manage our allies. We had to make a commitment. And so um, I feel bad that now um, the, the, the Russians are now taking over where it could be a nice, happy little NATO buffer there. And, um, and all these other bad problems wouldn't be happening. And we would be a lot friendlier with Turkey now instead of the nonsense about talking about sanctions with our NATO ally. I mean, how did we get here? I mean, I feel very upset about this. Thank you for your call, Dennis. Uh, so Tolu, uh, uh, insight from somebody who, who had been there uh, as a NATO peacekeeper. This is not NATO keeping the peace. This is basically the president withdrawing the American troops from the Kurdish-controlled portions of northern Syria that allowing the Turks to kind of sweep in here. You'd been mentioning a little bit before the break the degree to which uh, even the president's supporters have not been happy with this. What are the stakes for NATO and what is the stake for American interests in that region as as reflected by the concerns that you're hearing from people within national security, uh, diplomatic, and uh, and military structures in Washington, uh, there is a lot of concern in international community that the U.S. is not a reliable partner. That when the U.S. gives its word, it could easily go back on that word down down the road after an election if the new president decides to do something different. The Republicans and Democrats passed a resolution uh, by an overwhelming margin basically saying that the president, uh, his decision was ill-timed, it was ill-considered, that it was not a good idea to abandon the Kurds who had been fighting along the U.S. and that other countries within NATO are not likely to want to partner with the U.S. uh, unless they have assurances that that partnership will be ironclad and that there will not be sort of – they will not have the the rug pulled out from under them. Even the people who support withdrawing troops from the from Syria, who support lightening the footprint of the U.S. in the Middle East, have said that the way the president did this after a phone call with Turkey's leader in a very abrupt manner without having a plan for how to withdraw, uh, they're saying that at least if you're going to pull out, at least do it in a way that's strategic, that helps uh, and, and limits the damage and does not give away U.S. interest to some of our adversaries, including Russia and Iran and uh, the Syrian government led led by um, Assad. So there's a lot of concern on a bipartisan basis that what the president did is having negative ramifications for U.S. interests and for NATO and for our alliances all over the world. You know, I mentioned earlier in the hour how uh, Secretary of State uh, uh, Mike Pompeo seemed back on his heels over the Ukraine issue. He seems back on his heels over this. Uh, uh, he, you know, he didn't want to take a Wichita Eagles reporter's questions about the impeachment thing. He really didn't want to take one about the standing of the U.S. The question from the Wichita Eagle, what good really is the word of the U.S. in light of the president's treatment of the Kurds? Has that undercut U.S. credibility? Pompeo responded, quote, the whole predicate of your question is insane. Uh, Janet Hook, I want to turn now to an earlier question that arose in an earlier investigation that arose that appears to have wrapped up not with a bang but a whimper. Uh, there was a question of the State Department probe of Hillary Clinton, the butt her emails 
uh, inspiration, right, about how she had handled uh, public and, and governmental important emails on private, not only email, but at times private servers, and whether or not there was wrongdoing. Tell us a little bit about what was found and, you know, why, why this and whether this matters. Well, this was the end of a multi-year State Department investigation of the private email server that uh, Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State had used. It had been a big part of the Trump attack on her in the 2016 campaign. And their ultimate finding was that there was no systematic or deliberate mishandling of classified information. There was a sense that by using the server, they hadn't quite properly safeguarded classified information, but a lot of the emails in question actually hadn't been considered classified at the time. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I will note that in the meantime, we found out that some Trump officials, including Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, her husband... His closest advisors and relatives. His closest advisors have used private email servers. So the whole thing... You know what I was saying before about how we can't get away from 2016? Like, this is uh-huh. another thing, but her emails... And it just, you know, does that, does the nature of that investigation, does the way it played out, does the uh, way in which the president referred to it, does that give one pause into how one evaluates the kind of investigation that the attorney general has just authorized on a criminal level of those FBI agents uh, who were investigating people in sort of greater Trump world about their contacts with Russians and, you know, what spiraled out? That is, is there a reflection of that earlier story that we talked about? Do we have faith that such investigations are going to be conducted in good faith, which is really in some ways been the foundational claim of the president since he entered office that you can't trust any of this stuff? Right. Uh, I mean, actually, this State Department review came up with with the opposite conclusion than what Trump might have wanted, which was that there was there was no systematic mishandling of information. Um, it is clear, though, that the, the 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 problematic thing about what's going on in the Justice Department now is they are probing a question that actually has been studied, and conclusions have been reached. Um, by the bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee, that really that there and there, there's the idea that Ukraine was somehow behind or involved in the initiation of the Mueller probe or the the connection with Russia. It's just been it's just been ruled out by other authorities, and it's kind of like Trump can't let that answer remain in place. I mean, the amazing. Um, so, sorry, sorry. Go so, ahead, please. So, so there is this this idea that it's not only a misuse, a potential misuse of the power of the Justice Department, but that it's in pursuit of a question that um, members of both parties think was answered. Uh, and and he now has an attorney general willing to willing to do that. I want to turn now, uh, Janet, to the to the twenty twenty elections. Uh, you know, Biden is uh, doing press now. Uh, Joe Biden, the former vice president, he seems to be uh, going a little bit on the attack. Uh, he sat down for an interview with CBS's Nora O'Donnell. Uh, and in a clip that was released just uh, earlier this morning, uh, Biden focused on the role President Trump's children have played in his administration. If I'm president, get elected president, my children are not going to have offices in the White House. My children are not going to sit in on cabinet meetings. What's improper about that? It's just simply improper because you should make it clear to the American public that everything you're doing is for them, for them. And the idea that you're going to have go to the extent that he is gone to have our, you know, uh, 
his, his children, his son-in-law, etc., engaged in the day-to-day operation of things they know nothing about. Just think you don't think Jared Kushner should be negotiating a Middle East peace solution? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't. What, what credential does he bring to that? Now, obviously, as we mentioned before, Biden's son, Hunter, has come under scrutiny for his uh, involvement, uh, high-paid involvement in the Ukrainian company some years ago uh, when Biden was vice president. And that's been the basis for Trump's recent attacks against this uh, Democratic frontrunner. Uh, Janet Hook, how much has this thrown the vice president off stride? And how much, you know, how much is there something legitimate for the vice president to worry about as his own uh, family members' uh, activities come under scrutiny? Well, the... President Trump's attacks on Biden have been a sort of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it has um, called attention to his son's business dealings in Ukraine. And while there were there was there's been no finding of any real wrongdoing, it kind of there's this feeling that you know th- that he was somehow trading on his family's name by getting this great gig. Probably not something that they wanted much talked about. But Trump has taken it much farther, and. Um, forced Biden to spend more time than he probably would like uh, responding to that and trying to change the dynamic and deflect attention. And to be honest, frankly, for the last week or so, there's been less attention on it, if only because so many damning things have been coming out about Trump and Ukraine. On the other hand, the, the I said it was a double-edged sword. The, the, the benefit to Biden with all of this attention on him from Trump's attack is that he says that that's a sign that Trump regards him as his most formidable opponent in the general election. And so it sort of buttresses Biden's argument that I am the candidate best equipped to beat Trump. Jack Beatty, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren had seemingly been getting real traction and there had been some sense that in some ways she was the front runner, you know. There's a lot of furloughs left in this horse race, right? Uh, so uh, calling it prematurely doesn't make any sense. But is there some sense that she perhaps is plateauing or is she finding her footing and, and seeing what it is to, to, to fight for electoral victory at this level? I think these are fateful days and I guess weeks for Elizabeth Warren. She's got to decide how she's going to pay for her 30 plus trillion dollar Medicare for all. Uh, and when she comes out with that, uh, or whether she will reconsider, uh, a letter to the editor of the Times today says, well, you know, she could well say, look, I've looked into this. I've had second thoughts. The president doesn't change when facts change. I change now that I've seen how much this is going to cost. Whether she'll do that or not, we don't know. It seems unlikely. But Everything could hang on this. Even people like Paul Krugman, who is an enthusiast for Medicare for All, have been warning that that Elizabeth Warren has put herself in a box by committing, by saying, I'm with Bernie uh, Mm -hmm. on this on this program, on this on this on this idea that is means hundreds, you know, millions of Americans would lose their health insurance and for something else, something better, she says. It's a big moment for her campaign, and it may even be a, ma- a big moment for the November uh, 2020 election. Tolu Olorunipa, I wanted also uh, to touch briefly. There is uh, a book out uh, this week 
Uh, interestingly, actually, there are a couple books out. There's a Jim, Jim Mattis, the former defense secretary, is out touting uh, his memoir. He's been upstaged a little bit by a former speechwriter for him who's uh, offering criticism and inside dirt on what things were like dealing with Trump in a way that Mattis has criticized. Uh, but also is a way in some ways it's a lot more colorful than what Mattis has been offering. But also there's this book by this anonymous White House official. Give us the backdrop on that. Yeah, about a year ago, this anonymous official had an op-ed placed in the New York Times saying that they were part of the resistance within the Trump administration, someone working very close to the president who was trying to rein in his impulses, prevent him from doing things that were illegal or wrong. And it caused a lot of stir in Washington. The president wanted to unmask this person and find out who they were. We still have not found out who this person is. But we do know that this anonymous official is coming out with a book where they plan to blow the whistle on the Trump administration and on the president himself, tell what's happening behind closed doors with this president expose all kinds of misconduct, according to this anonymous person, uh, that not only happened within the administration, but came out of the the mouth of the president himself. The the person said that they took copious notes and they are going to be quoting directly from the president and taking readers on an inside journey to hear what was happening uh, amongst uh, – along the ride, along the journey among during some of the uh, very interesting days of the Trump administration. So I'm sure this book will cause a lot of controversy. I'm sure it will sell a lot of copies. We've seen a lot of these tell-all t- style books from former Trump administration officials and this one is promising to be – explosive in, in providing details of what the president was doing. So we'll be, we'll be looking for it. A new form of fire and fury indeed, uh, if and when it comes out. You've been hearing the words of Tolu Olorunipa, political reporter for The Washington Post and a political analyst for CNN. Tolu, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. And my great thanks, too, to Janet Hook. She's national political reporter for The LA Times. Janet, great to hear your voice. Great to be here. Thanks. And Jack Beattie, own, Jack, on Point's own news analyst. Jack, thanks as always. Thank you, David. You can continue the conversation and get the On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org. Follow us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. We're produced by Anna Bauman, Justine Down, Mylene Amata, Stefano Katsonis, James Ross, Dory Scheimer, Alex Schroeder, Grace Tatter, and Adam Waller. With help from Sharif Campbell, Jeffrey Lyon, and Sidney Wertheim. Our executive producers, Karen Schiff and me. I'm David Folkenflick. You've been listening to On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. Can Profit Motive Save the Planet? Is a company that takes the climate into account a better investment? How about one that pays workers a living wage and champions transparency and board diversity? That's the idea of ESG, or Environmental Social Governance. Sounds like a wonderful story. You can make more money, you can save the planet at the same time. Almost no one is going to turn that down. It's a story that Andy King of Questrom and Veet Hennish of the Wharton School challenged during a recent event at Questrom. Professor King played the critic, who says these are problems for regulation to solve, not markets. As a famous economist said to me, you can't fix externalities with the profit motive, because the profit motive is not linked to externalities. Externalities are the byproduct of pursuing profits. So you can't fix them by getting people to even look harder at profits. Meanwhile, Veet emphasized that ESG can be an important part of the solution. 
regulation matters, and we need better regulation. And we need to reallocate trillions of dollars of capital over time to the climate transition alone, forgetting social justice, racial justice, and other ESG issues. We're going to need the profit motive for that. No government regulation is going to reallocate tens of trillions of dollars of capital alone. It's going to be investors who are looking at current government regulation and future government regulation and trying to connect the dots. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken? wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets and Society at ibms.bu.edu. 